Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins and I'm on Zoom with my colleagues Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And today we're joined by a living legend of music journalism and writing, all the way from Suffolk. It's Charles Shah Murray. A warm welcome to you, sir. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, <laughs> depending on when you're listening to this. <laughs> In the very unlikely event that any listeners out there don't know, Charles helped to make the NME, the countercultural force that it was in the 70s. Along with Nick Kent, Ian MacDonald and many others, he set the hip and irreverent tone that made the Inky Weekly a bible of insider knowledge and taste making. Not content with that, he went on to write two of the great music books, the first about Jimi Hendrix and the second about John Lee Hooker, whose voice you'll hear later in this episode. Maybe blues is the right place to start, Charles, since the first piece of yours we're featuring on the homepage is the interview you did on December the 6th, 1970, with the mighty Muddy Waters. And that starts, my favourite singer since I was 12 years old was Muddy Waters, which I was really impressed by. Tell us how, how on earth did Muddy Waters come to be your favourite singer when you, were, when you were 12 years old? Well, it's one of my firmest beliefs that every boy needs an older sister. I didn't have one so I had to borrow an older sister off a friend of mine who, li who lived up the road. And when I first encountered her, her favourite artists were Chubby Checker and Bobby Rydell. But she then progressed, and suddenly she had Georgie Fame live at the Flamingo. And I just bought the first Stones EP, and it said on the back... You know, they are Britain's foremost exponents of Chicago blues. And it was like, oh, Chicago blues, what's that? And, of course, my borrowed older sister had a chess compilation on the Pine International R&B series. And it's called The Blues Volume 1. And it was on a perfect starter pack. And I borrowed it and began to kick and scream in a thoroughly unattractive manner when she asked for it back. <laughs> but from then on, I mean, I was, buying, I was buying pop records with one part of my pocket money, and with the other, I was, I was trying to get blues records, and there was a Golden Guinea, which is Pie's budget label, compilation called Rhythm and Blues All Stars, which was even better than the Blues Volume 1 because it was half the price and had 14 tracks rather than 12. But, you know, from then on, you know, I'd be listening to, I'd be listening to the Beatles and the Stones and all, all the other pop stuff that was happening. But I was also listening to, you know, via Pie Golden Guinea, I was discovering John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, Buddy Guy, and people like that. You know, that was when it started, and hardly anybody else in my year was listening to this stuff, so it was another reason for them to think I was weird. They were right. <laughs> Martin, I imagine some of these records were probably lying around your home when you were a youngster as well. Yes, and because uh, my dad was a great friend of Sam Charters, Ooh. Sam sent us tickets to go and visit New York to see them in 1968 and then took us to the Newport Folk Festival. Wow. So I actually played Buddy Guy's guitar when I was 12. Oh my God, you've never <laughs> told me that. Wow. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So Buddy okay. Guy was doing, he, you know, he was playing and he had this 50 foot long lead. So he would get, he got down into the audience. I mean, he would walk across his club and go out. Real showman, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 totally. So that was, yeah, slightly mind blowing for a. 12-year-old. Well, well, that tops that tops me, I must say. <laughs> I didn't mean <laughs> Julia to. Clips. Julia Clips. <laughs> absolutely. Absolute, Look, it's absolutely. not a competition, guys. It's not no, a competition. It is not. It's not. Um, no, that was just a, a freaky thing that, that kind of happened. And, you know, Janis Joplin was there that year. But the one I remember most with is Arlo Guthrie, because I think as a 12-year-old, he was really appealing. Hmm. Was he playing? He was, he must, it was he the year must, after Alice's Restaurant, so he kept he was teasing probably that having, intro. He was probably having to play it at every show, all 26 minutes of it. What I remember yes. is, is that he kept playing the intro to it and then going into another song. 
kind of playing with right. the audience, isn't it? Yeah, Ray Davies right. used to do that with You Really Got Me until right the way, right at the end of each Kinks show. He would actually play it. Yeah. Charles, the thing <laughs> really? about this Muddy Waters piece, which is it's just a great little interview. It came out in the January It's 71. a fantastic interview. Can yeah. I just say that? Yeah. I mean, a re- yeah. incredibly good interview. I, I, it, I'd never it, read it before, and it was... Uh, well, yeah. it was weird. You know, I was... I was 19 and sort of uh, meeting this Titan. And it was under very strange circumstances because this was in Reading, of all places. Is that where you grew up? That's my understanding. I never grew up, Barney. You should know that. (laughs) (laughs) We're still waiting for that. Yeah, I I mean, I was born... I was born in London, raised in Reading, and I didn't get to get out of Reading and back to London until I was nearly 20. But... It was in this tiny little club. It was a, it was a little West Indian club just up the road from the Olympia Ballroom, which was where I saw the animals, who were my f- the first time I saw a real proper group who had records out. But it was a tiny little dive with a leaking roof, and Muddy was on crutches because he'd uh, he was just getting back to work after a serious road accident, and. By comparison, the checkerboard lounge was a palace. It was the Copacabana. (laughs) (laughs) Big Bill's Copacabana. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So that was written for the school kids issue of Oz? No. No. It was. This was was a January 71. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating to me that the Oz you know, was receptive to this interview with, you know, uh, by by the sort of stands of the time, an elderly blues man. But you got, so obviously, famously, you, your kind of lucky break was responding to this ad to come up to London and, and be involved in this school kids issue of the underground magazine Oz. So I wanted to just ask you about the the underground, just the the whole phenomenon of the underground, both in terms of you know music itself, but uh, the publications that arose out of the the scene. Because you wrote pretty much for all of them. You wrote for IT. You wrote for Ink. Uh, you wrote for Cream C R E A M. A bit later, how do you how do you look back on how it felt to be? It, particularly in London in the late 60s? It was my dream because throughout my teens, I mean, this is a weird thing. I remember the 60s as this wonderful time, but it was the culture that was wonderful. My own existence, you know, wasn't wonderful because I was I was crap at practically everything. I wasn't <laughs> academic. I wasn't athletic. I had very, very poor luck in attempting to acquire girlfriends, you know. And on Parents' Day, teachers would would tell my folks, Charles is such a clever boy, we just can't understand why he's doing so badly. <laughs> but so I was immersed in, immersed in the culture. I think it was Tolkien who said that anybody who buys a book a book of fantasy literature is actually saying get me out of here you know to take you out of your mundane existence and into a place that was wonderful and you know the the music scene and all and the other phenomena that went went with the underground the politics the fashions everything you know it was like why am i here I should be there. That's my place. That's my world. And so when I saw the ad in, in Oz, I answered it and rounded up a posse of like-minded friends to go up there. And I felt I was accepted there. You know, they saw something in me that I always hoped was there, but didn't seem apparent to the people I was actually with. So it's like, this is my world. I'll do whatever I need to do to stay in there. And I didn't actually rate my first few pieces, but I particularly remember Jim Anderson, uh, the the Oz Three. I mean, they were, we'll talk about them in a sec, but it was Jim Anderson who encouraged me and told me I had talent. And then Felix Dennis said, 
do you want to review a couple of records in the next issue? And I thought, okay, I'm out of the playpen, the school kids' playpen, and I'm now in big school with the people who I admired. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and gradually got better. Did you read yours, Martin, at the time? I remember it around. Were you too slightly too young or, yeah? I was probably slightly too young and I remember it being around and you would see it like in Virgin Records. I remember International Times more, I think, seeing it around. But where had you bought that? Was Oz stocked in Reading? That seems... Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it wasn't in Smith's. No. But, uh, you know, there were there were lots of weird little news agents where I could buy Marvel comics. They had Oz and IT. I had to I had to wait until trips to London before I could find Rolling Stone anywhere. But you know, I read the I read and to a certain extent enjoyed the inkies of that era. But I thought the American writers, you know, had a much more exciting handle on what was happening. And so my early models were Bangs and Marcus and Mendelssohn and people like that. And yeah. I thought, I'm not saying that everybody who wrote for LME or Melody Maker or Sounds at that time were rubbish. They weren't. There were some good writers there. But I thought, I'm at least as good as these guys, and hopefully I can I can get to be as good as the Yanks. And I just kept at it. Cream, which was started by Bob Houston, who was an ex-deputy editor of Melody Maker, he was basically a big old jazzer who looked like an unmade bed with a beard. And (laughs) I got turned on to Cream by Charlie Gillett, who'd been the reviews editor of Inc. for the first couple of issues. And he marked my card with Bob. And Bob gave me work in... What I thought of as a ground-level publication, because if NME and Melody Maker and them were above ground and Oz and IT and them were underground, Cream was ground-level. It was a place where writers from the weeklies could do a bit of stuff that they couldn't do at their home base publications, and people from the underground could do stuff that didn't work there. So that Mm. was my home Mm. from home. Could it, is it fair to say that one of the smartest things you ever did in your career was to retain your middle name, Shah, because it made you sound so exotic? I mean, I can remember when I first saw your byline. <laughs> and so I've always wanted to ask you about Shah. I think it was your mum's. Was that your mum's maiden name? Yeah, but tell us why, why you weren't just Charlie Murray, because well, people I might thought... not be talking about you in quite the same way. Well, I thought Charles. I thought Charles Murray was a really boring name, and my mother's maiden name was Shah, but it was spelled Hungarian. In Hungary, it's like a big flag that says Jewish, but I. It was originally she spelt it S C H A R, but I took the C out because it was a excessively Teutonic and b reminiscent of fizzy drinks. <laughs> I just wanted a memorable byline. Well, you got that. You, you got, got that. that. You really and did. It all, it all, and it also gave me it gave me cute initials. And I think the first time somebody at some publication I was on just bylined something I wrote CSM. I thought, okay, that's my superhero name. So right from the off, you were thinking about kind of how to not market yourself, but how to sort of establish yourself going forward, looking way ahead. Yeah, you created a brand. It's a brand. I wanted it? a persona you know, that was cooler than my boring day-to-day self. You know, it was also a chance, it was a chance to reinvent. I mean, we're not talking on a David Bowie or Madonna scale here, but it was, it was, it was a chance to present myself to people who'd never, who'd never encountered me in any other context and make myself seem cooler and more interesting than I, than I privately thought I actually was. (laughs) <laughs> Tell us about the enemy because we we're going to jump forward to the summer of 72. What is your memory of how you were recruited? Obviously I'm, you know, I'm assuming like Nick Logan and maybe Alan Smith saw your byline in some of the publications that we've talked about, like the British cream. And there was this drive to make enemy much hipper than it had ever been. So what can you just take us back to that, that year? Well, in the summer of 72, early summer, 
I'd just done this 8,000-word piece about Mark Boland for Cream magazine. Fantastic piece. Thank you. It really is, yeah. I think it was the late and much-missed Tony Tyler who saw the piece, went to Alan Smith and said, we need this guy. And... I bumped into Tony at some at some dodgy festival and he said, we want you to come and write for NME. And at the time, NME was making brave attempts to coolify itself, but it was still, it was IPC. It was the man. It was establishment. And, you know, I was underground, man. You know, I was a revolutionary. But the thing is, I'd had a pair of boots at the repairs for six weeks because I didn't have the money to uh, to bail them out, <laughs> and a pair of pants at the dry cleaners in the same situation. So I suddenly thought, it's a big, it's the big stage, you know. Even though NME was, you know, veering near cancellation, it was just beginning its upswing. I thought. Yeah, let's go play on the big stage. You know, so I took the IPC shilling and it wasn't much more than a shilling because I remember Alan Smith put me on 25 quid a week retainer to start with and said, don't tell anybody how much you're getting because you're getting much more than our other freelancers. And of course, I told Tony Tyler and he said, that's ridiculous. You know, we're paying everybody else more than that. So in the end... um, (laughs) In the end, first my retainer was bumped up. Then I decided, then I went on staff. And it was interesting because there were still people from the Ancien Regime around. I mean, apart from, you know, Nick, Nick Logan and Roy Carr, who were more than up for the downstroke, and Tony, they all wanted it. I remember meeting this guy called John Wells, no relation to the great much-missed comedian. But, you know, he was actually, he was, I think, he'd been Andy Gray's deputy editor. Andy Gray was Alan Smith's predecessor. But, you know, he actually wore blue blazers with with silver buttons <laughs> and ties unpleasantly reminiscent of school ties. And he was gone pretty soon. But gradually the dead wood got cut away and new people came in. I mean, it was like, I remember Alan, oh God, no, I think it was Nick, who said, can you do us a piece on Iggy Pop? And I said, well, I can, but I know a guy who's really into Iggy Pop. So I th- um, I think you can guess who I'm talking about, readers. Oh, 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 let me, let, let, let's think about this. Yes, I think we know who you're talking about. Of course, Mr. Kent. And... I'd brought, I remember I'd brought in, I mean, Robert Ellis was the staff photog at the time and, uh, you know, a fine fine bloke and an excellent photographer he was and is to this day. But I brought in this disreputable Irish-American with hennaed hair and dark glasses and leather jacket who'd been contributing to various undergrounds under the pseudonym of Captain Snaps. And that was Joe Stevens. He used oh. the Snaps name because he didn't have residency and he didn't have a work permit. And I remember that for quite a while, Joe had to go to, had to, go to Paris for a night every six months to get another six months when he came back. And, of course, Mr. Kent, you know, when, when Nick came in, Penny Smith wasn't far behind. And suddenly we went from having one great photographer to three. And basically, I wanted to turn NME into the world's first mass market underground rock weekly. And we sort of got there. (laughs) You did. You did. One of the things that I found, well, I find interesting in retrospect is that, I mean, you were a real, at a very young age, you're expert on blues, but you very quickly became the NME's Bowie guy. And you wrote, you did a, a number of interviews with David, one of which we're featuring on the homepage. There's a, there was a sort of four-year break where you didn't talk to him. And so 1977, interview with David, when Heroes has come out. And there's a lovely moment in it, Charles, where you um, <laughs> you start talking about Elizabeth Bowen and Thomas Pynchon. And David says, ooh, you're well-read, aren't you? <laughs> and I remember you writing about things. I seem to remember you you were responsible for me discovering, like, Philip K. Dick, I think. Is that likely? Possibly. I yeah. mean, it... 
it was, you know, because because quite early on at NME, particularly after Alan Smith left and Nick Logan moved into the big chair, I remember something Tony Tyler said, which was, we write, we don't just write about the music, we write about what the music's about. And so, you know, other areas of culture came in. I mean, I remember, I mean, it was later, but I remember interviewing Kurt Vonnegut and J.G. Ballard for NME, writing about Philip K. Dick and Philip Marlowe. And, you know, it was that was another of the legacies from coming from the underground press. We didn't sort of yes. corral music off into its own little cubicle mm. because with the whole underground scene, there was art, fashion, politics, and all that stuff came in. You know, we wanted to we wanted to write about everything with that we that we were interested in in our in our different ways. Yes. That really comes across in that in the Bowie interview. With the Bowie thing, I mean, my first ever Bowie piece, you know, we were talking, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about Charles Mingus, you know, and I think the reason I became for a brief period David's representative on earth was that I think Bowie liked the fact that, you know, I had wider fr- a wider frame of cultural reference maybe than some of the other people he was required to talk to. And he found our conversations amusing and stimulating, so we did more of it. The reason mm. why there was that four-year gap was that he wasn't living in the in the UK anymore. You know, he was right. he was in Europe, he was in the States, and going through all kinds of very weird trips. I mean, basically, I'd missed out. I missed Bowie during the cocaine years. So while he was coked out, we didn't talk. I'm sure that's a coincidence. <laughs> yes. And he talks about that in that interview. And, and he he talks about just feeling more settled and kind of, you know, almost like I've grown up a bit. I've come out of that L.A. nightmare. You know, I lived above this Turkish restaurant in Berlin. I sort of came, you know, he was the man who came back down to earth in a, yeah. in, in a mm. way, wasn't he? Exactly. And, you know, I... I, I love those Berlin albums. We haven't got really time to talk about them. It's interesting that you, there is this gap and it's a very, it's a different Bowie that you're talking to, isn't, isn't it? In 77. Yeah. He had, he had, he was wearing his normal, his normal bloke collection on that occasion. You know, I remember, a, I remember a check shirt and it was either chinos or jeans, but you know, and you know, his eyebrows had grown back. He didn't have any makeup on. He was definitely into his next phase. I mean, I'm still ashamed of not getting low when I first heard it, but you know, in now I think of it as not in form but in content. I think of it as Bowie's blues album. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, going to go back and listen <laughs> <laughs> with that in mind. Yeah, totally. Sometimes you get so lonely. Sometimes you get nowhere. I've lived all over the world. I've left every place. Martin, what, what are your memories, if, if, if any specific ones, of reading The Enemy in, in the 70s? Oh, God. Well, it was just so good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, because it was like every there's those periods in magazines' lives when when you feel that all the staff are heading in the same direction. So every caption to every feature was funny. You know, it was a fantastic kind of. A lot of it was to do with humour, which I think probably gets gets forgotten about. But there was Ray Lowry, but it informed everything. So you felt the sub edit. I mean, you know, knowing magazines, you you kind of appreciate what sub editors do. Well, every headline was great. Every um, intro was great. Well, every the, caption. The funny stuff. I mean, the the prime movers there were Tony Tyler and Ian um, Ian McDonald. And mm. um, I mean, funny, I, uh, I think I wrote I wrote a fair amount of uh, head, headlines and captions. But yeah, it was like remember that this was Python time, and. Yeah. 
you know, Ian and Tony, Ian, the whole staff was like, we were, we were, to- we were totally into Python. And, you know, I had my references from my early years of being introduced to the Marx Brothers by my parents. So, you know, yes, uh, we I think had that, the that was the thing stuff. about the enemy. If you were a reader of that, all the things that you were interested in seemed to be in it if you were in the, so there was Chandler, you know, there were the, there was Python. But and you, I just remember as well as really heavy weight features and kind of in depth things that were so well done. But I remember the <laughs> on the humans that I just remember your review of Lee Hazelwood's poet fool or bum, which was just bum. <laughs> the, the whole review was just that one word, and I just thought that was that was kind of maybe unfair to Lee Hazelwood, but yeah, it, prob- it probably was, but I, um, but. <laughs> Some jokes are too good to pass up in the end. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't resist that one. I think it sort of comes back to <laughs> what you were saying earlier that you, when you, when you went up to London and you were sort of in that Oz environment, you suddenly felt that it was somewhere you could feel at home. And I, I guess that you sort of then created that with the NME as well, with you know all these literary references of what what you were just saying, Martin, is that once you have all of that together it's somewhere that someone else can feel that they can belong as well because you have all of this interwoven material i mean it was ian mack for example who came up with the idea of personalizing the letters page and my concept of the letters page was sort of based on the way stan lee and them did the marvel the marvel comics letters page where it wasn't just dear editor and an anodyne reply it was like dear stan and jack and a lot of very funny replies basically we wanted to invite the readers into our world i mean sometimes i'd be uh, i'd be going into an interview or going to review a concert and I thought, right, I have the privilege of being here. There are two, there are a quarter of a million phantom people sitting on my shoulders, so to speak. And I want them to get <clears throat> as vivid an idea of, you know, the conversation I'm having or the show I'm seeing or whatever it was, as vivid an idea as possible. Well, I want, mm. wanted to bring everybody in to make them feel that they had at least a foothold in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you succeeded. Absolutely, indeed. I wanted to just, you know, jump forward a little bit to the early 80s when you were still writing for NME pretty, pretty regularly. And I'd started writing about early 81. And while I was sort of obviously really interested in a lot of what was going on, particularly you know, in the post-punk period in in this country, uh, I was also getting very, very heavily into Black American music. And I particularly remember this wonderful piece you did in 1982 where you interviewed B.B. King, Bobby Blue Bland, and John Lee Hooker, a piece called Talking Blues, because I think they were all playing on a build together with the Hammersmith. Hammersmith Odeon, yeah. Just it down was the like, road. It was very funny because they were all so they were all so different. Also different and and you that's how you structure the piece. It's like you you paint these pictures of these three very different men. And I mean I was just because I was sort of becoming obsessed with Bobby Bland because he seemed to sort of be the sort of bridge between blues and soul music in a way uh, and and such an influence yeah. on on soul mm. singers and i mean probably is my favorite black american singer i would say and i did get to interview him years later but um so part of the reason for mentioning that piece um is 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 obviously that some years later after you had published your amazing Jimi hendrix book crosstown traffic the next big project and i remember you know, like for years, we would be you know, fellow writers and we would talk about your John. We knew you were at work on a John Lee Hooker biography. And it was like, when the hell is this thing ever going to come out? And, uh, and but we knew that it was going to be really substantial when it did. And indeed it was. Boogeyman is an incredible piece of work. Well, it took eight years. It cost me a marriage and a large part of my sanity. One reason why it took so long was that there was very little, little or no reliable background information available available anywhere. When I start, uh, started researching it, I found that I had to go back to basics on just about everything 
because you know what I think I say somewhere in the book about all these sort of incredible bollocks that was written about Hooker on liner notes for his albums. So I had to start. I had to start absolutely from scratch. Which, I mean, I thought it would take about eighteen months, which is what Crosstown Traffic took. But right. what I didn't take into account was that before I wrote a word of Crosstown Traffic, I'd spent years acquiring research materials. And also, there was an awful lot of stuff about Hendrix already in print to be sifted through. With with Hooker, had to st- had to start absolutely from scratch. Several trips to the States, time going to Detroit, going to Mississippi, and meet, meeting some quite unreliable narrators along the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought we would take the opportunity to add this audio interview with John Lee. And we're going to listen to a couple of clips. It's Tony Sherman interviewing him for Musician Magazine in 1992. It's a phone interview. It's not the easiest listen. He's quite, you know, he's already in his 70s and quite mumbly mumbly at this point, as I'm sure you will remember from the research you did. Indeed. And this very, very almost impenetrable Mississippi accent that hadn't changed with his like moves to Detroit and California and so forth. So, but I think it's worth hearing these two. So the first one regards, you know, his first and possibly most famous song, Boogie Chillin'. So Jasper, if you would just play this for us. One night I was laying down. I heard mom and papa talking. I heard papa tell mama to let that boy boogie woogie. You know the verse to, to Boogie Chill and everybody's favorite verse where you're like laying upstairs, you know, you hear mom and papa talking. I was laying down one night. Yeah. I was laying upstairs, laying down one You're laying night. down. And papa talking. They were, yeah. yeah. Where did that... Boy, Boogie. Yeah, where did that come from? Where did you I make that? I made it up. Yeah. Where do you... Do you remember where you got the idea for it? Because it's such a great little picture, you know, in people... Well, in I just, you know, I'm just... I was in the car and I, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just different things and you know, I don't know I just yeah come to me and yeah the old boogie you know everybody you know yeah he used to call it way back to the boogie woogie so and I just call it call it the boogie you know and yeah. uh, he used to play around with it and just yeah. uh, I just turned it into yeah I wrote it boogie children The great, the mighty Boogie Chillin. Numerous versions of that, but, you know, it's 1948, right? Yeah. It's the original. I mean, one thing about uh, one thing about John was that he didn't stutter when he sang, but he had a major stutter in speech. He was very self-conscious about it. And in a lot of old, old older interviews, he sort of almost says as little as possible because he's nervous about his, his stammer. And... I had to spend quite a, I had to spend a lot of time with John because, or Mr. Hook, Mr. Hooker. I had to spend a lot of time with him for him to feel comfortable with me and talk at greater length. And the more relaxed he got, um, the less he stuttered. I mean, there were times sitting in his house when we'd be talking and he would actually doze off while we were talking. So what I'd do, I'd go out, I'd go out the, onto the back porch and smoke a cigarette and wait for the phone to ring because I knew that he, the phone would wake him. He'd answer the phone and once he'd finished with the phone call, he was up for, for a bit more chat. But I mean, virtually all the interview material in Boogeyman was got like 15 or 20 minutes at a time. So the second clip sort of takes us into, you know, I guess more or less the period when you would have been researching the book and visiting him in what Oakland, I think. Redwood City, California. Redwood City. Okay, which which is near where Neil Young lives, isn't it? To put this this particular clip in context, the Mr. Lucky album came out the year before and it was well, relatively star-studded, wasn't it? Carlos Santana um, plays on the track that he's talking about and it's and he's he's suddenly like a, a, a star and making the best money he's ever made yeah. in terms of concert fees so let's just listen to this jasper
your favorite cut on the album? Strip me naked. Is that is that how come? I don't know. I just like I like the lyrics. Yeah. It's got a lot of meaning to it. Yeah. She took my house. Yeah. She took my Cadillac. Yeah. Took the money I had in the bank. Yeah. Strip me naked. Strip me naked. Yeah. Was a mean old Jewish. Yeah. Now that makes sense. That, that I love that because that really kind of speaks to the sort of the essence of this guy, doesn't it, Charles? The, mm. That you know, he, there wasn't anything fancy about what John Lee did, but it's so distinctive, so unusual, and I I imagine that's what kind of you know made you decide to write a biography of this guy because he's so unusual compared to even like Muddy, Sonny Boy Williamson and so forth. Yeah. There's no, nobody that sounds like John Lee Hooker. No, quite a few people have tried. People don't really think of Van Morrison as a guitar player, but he can play more like John Lee than most people can. Mm-hmm. Ry Kuda has this track called John Lee Hooker for President, and he he does that. I mean, the point about John Lee Hooker is that that is how he plays. He doesn't play any other way. You know, if you wanted to hire John Lee Hooker to play in somebody else's band, couldn't be done. He can only play his own music, but he's the only person who can play that music. It's like, you know, another guitar player who people think was as technically limited or monotechnical, Johnny Ramone. You know, Johnny Ramone could only could only play like Johnny Ramone. If you asked him to play like, I don't know, Jeff Beck or anybody like that, he wouldn't have been able to do it. But no. he played like Johnny Ramone, and despite the thousands of punk would be punk guitar players who tried to imitate him, none of them got none of them quite got it right. You know, no. it's somebody who is so whose style is so expressive of their inner self that they can only play like that and nobody else can play like them well i have to thank you charles for turning me on to dark room by john lee hooker oh which is the sparse i mean just uh, such that literally is music made by no one else i'm sitting yeah in my dark room dark room in my Dog room of trying about you. It's almost spooky, isn't it? Though, when, mm, he's, when he's stripped back, is that John Lee Hooker was like Muddy Waters and Sonny Boy Williamson and others we we've mentioned a huge influence on the band, and we learned late yesterday that Robbie Robertson, the sort of prime mover and songwriter behind that group had died at the age of 80 which certainly was a big shock to me though I knew he wasn't very well and I know it was a huge shock to Martin we Martin and I basically were as it were introduced by the band's music or our, our shared passion for the band so this is this is kind of a, a big a big loss and a, and a big kind of moment in my musical life they are my favorite group and so we just wanted to pay tribute, right, Martin, to mm. to Robbie, and just briefly discuss, you know, what the band meant. I think maybe we 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 could just start by playing actually a, a third audio clip, not from John Lee Hooker, but this is actually Robbie also just coincidentally talking to Tony Sherman. And so, Jasper, if you wouldn't mind playing that, and then we'll kind of try and put Robbie and the band in some kind of context. But it was definitely like, here's the angle on this. Here's the inside scoop on this. And he would turn me on to musical things, you know, just southern musical things that he knew about, because from growing up there, that I didn't know about yet. 
and style. Just style. I mean, you never said, well, walk in like this. Never like that. It was like... He's your big brother, basically. Yeah, absolutely. When I get off of this mountain, you know where I want to go. Straight down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. Some listeners will realize that that is Robbie talking about Levon Helm, his big brother, as it were, his southern brother when leaving on the hawks when he first went down south to arkansas and other parts of the south with with leave on robbie being canadian and that brotherhood which then turned kind of a bit poisonous later in their lives between leave on and robbie was at the heart of of the band i mean we didn't have long to kind of pick something out because this just happened and i uh, i thought it would just be nice to hear robbie talking Hmm. generously about about live on helm martin just in you know in a few, <laughs> 12 in a few phrases yeah, 12 <laughs> words you know t- t- tell us tell us what the band meant to you so when uh, to go back to sam charters he came through london having um decided to leave america because he he felt that he would if he didn't he would join the weathermen and had been you know in the stu- in the demonstrations in the chicago uh, democratic convention he brought five LPs with him and gave them to me. And one of them was music from Big Pink. And in a weird way, because I'd grown up with my dad's love of jazz and, you know, with jazz musicians hanging around. And I discovered things on my own. But Sam actually helped me discover all those things. And music from Big Pink was just, it was like this stunning amalgamation of, of all the musics of America that I loved. And I think, what kind of made them almost, you know, define a genre that didn't even exist. But what made them different was that I think they were intuitive musicians who'd, who'd grown up playing together. And then Bob Dylan comes into their lives and Robbie, who is a voracious learner, if they hadn't had Robbie Robertson and they'd somehow been Dylan's backing group, that, none of that would have happened. I mean, I get the kind of whole thing about songwriting credits and and the kind of royalty argument. But I think without Robbie, there would have been no band because he kind of took something from Dylan in a kind of knowing way because he was a, you know, autodidact. He was, you know, working at Bunwell Films and, you know, learning about art. So I think that combination of him writing for those voices and for those musicians was a kind of unparalleled one uh, in my experience and and kind of made them unique. The fact he was also a, a cracking guitarist and yeah. structurally so interesting. You know, if you listen to his parts in those songs, it's, it, they're really, he's not the most technical guitarist, I don't think. It's, he plays with a lot of feel, but, but they're slightly architectural, his parts. He understands how what he's doing interacts with, Rick Danko's bass and they're kind of covering this and they're not strumming and there's not, there's, you know, they're, it's very different to listen back to those albums. They're kind of, I think, was it Elvis Costello said they were like chamber jazz in some way that there's the way the instruments work together is, is kind of unique. Mm, yeah. Or well, isn't Dylan called Robbie the only mathematical, mathematical. guitar genius? Yeah. Um, Charles, <laughs> what, I mean, what was your, take on the band at the time and how do you look back on that group now well i bought the weight as a single when it first came out what's fascinated me in a sense is the visions of america produced by you know non-americans because they were uh, four-fifths of the band were canadians it's like the, the stones vision of america from outside it and the band's vision of america from outside it in a sense they they had perspectives on american music not that very many american musicians had it's like the way they were seeing america from outside was uh, a different perspective in, in each case fascinating and you know the fact that they the band the band had three lead singers all of whom could portray the characters in the songs they were a fascinating group i mean for me 
It's the fir- the first two albums and the live album are, are the ones I go to. Yeah. Because I think they lost focus as time went on, but it was that initial vision that grips me to this day. I think they did lose focus, and that was partly due to the fact that these kind of country boys were, you know, were suddenly, or well, not suddenly. I mean, because there were a good number of years between like being on the road with Ronnie Hawkins and flying in Lear jets with Bob Dylan. But I did think, I do think that scale of success they were ill prepared for. And, you know, we're talking 73, 74, we're talking, you know, cocaine and, you know, just lots of women. And I think Robbie was able to sort of take that in his stride. And Robbie was the guy, I mean, I always say, you know, I've obviously I've, I've written a lot about the band and I always say, you know, it's not about Levon or, or Robbie. It's not this camp or that camp. The fact is without Robbie's kind of self-discipline getting up in the morning and going to work while the others were sleeping off their hangovers and car crashes, you just wouldn't have had those extraordinary songs and those extraordinary records. Who would I who would I choose to be on a desert island with Robbie or Levon? Well it would probably be Levon. But but <laughs> you know, without Robbie, I don't think Levon would have become the extraordinary singer and drummer that that he probably would have just been content with being a kind of sideman in some ways, right? Yeah. So totally. So I it was Robbie, the band essentially that that brought him out as a as a singer. I think so. I mean Robbie always said he sort of cast these three guys as as the sort of principal characters in like short stories, you know, this short story is for Levon to sing. And this short story, like when you awake is a song for Rick Danko to sing. Right. And I think that's quite a nice way of looking at, at it. Um, but there is no other music like it. It is such a just, I mean, it is, it's the birth of Americana, but it's not, it's not it never feels strained or artificial or or stylized. It feels so organic and 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 emotionally real, doesn't it? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's only Garth Hudson left now. I know. Um, the oldest the, member of the band. And we have to mention, you know, we really have to mention Garth because I think again, if you took any, if you took any of them out of the band, the whole think collapse like which is what right. makes it so well great. that's the mark of a great group isn't it i mean it is. ages ago i was working up this theory about the difference between like great groups actually great groups and perfect groups a great yeah. group was like the stones before charlie watts died you know if you have mick keith and charlie then you can fill the rest of the lineup up with competent, warm bodies, and you'll get <laughs> you'll still get the stones. A perfect group was, if you like, the Beatles. If you replaced any of those guys, it wouldn't be the Beatles. In a in a per- perfect group, you can't replace anybody. And in fact, no. some groups who aren't really my favourites qualify as perfect groups, like you two. I mean, I can't imagine anybody else in you two. Not that I spend a great deal of time or indeed any listening to them. <laughs> but you're but right. You're right. It's whatever it is that they are, it's those four guys. ZZ yeah. Top until Dusty Hill died. And I think yes. beyond that comes that yes. element of like, if you took any of them out of it, they're not going to be the same either. You know, it's 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 that reciprocal relationship uh, yes. I think yeah. makes, makes it perfect, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it is so rare for, um, like, say, a four-piece group like you 2 to endure for that long without someone storming off in a hissy fit or overdosing on drugs, for yeah. example. You yeah. know, so that it's very, very rare. We also learned yesterday that Jamie Reed had died. And Jamie Reed, for anyone listening who doesn't know, was the guy who came up with the incredible kind of graphics for so many punk artifacts, the Sex Pistols, Sleeves, and so forth. We, <laughs> we're adding a John Savage interview with Jamie from 1983. And very important figure. I, I wanted to, to use that as a sort of springboard to just asking you briefly, Charles, about the, the about punk about punk rock because the first really the first i mean 
I knew about Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and I had Raw Power, I had Fun House and Kick Out the Jams. But you went to New York in April 75, and the piece that came out of that in June of that year, this is 1975, was called Down in the Scars with the Heavy Cult Figures. And you wrote about the CBG scene. I mean, none of us knew it. I mean, I didn't know anything about it until I read that piece. And then you with a guy who reviewed Patti Smith's Horses album in November 75. So I, I guess as I wanted to go back to that, so I'm just ask you, did it feel like the tables were turning, that the, the times were were changing and there was there was something new? Did you think that this, this new, like, anti-pomp rock, anti-prog rock, did you think this was going was, was going to be like a flash in the pan, a fly-by-night thing? Or did you think, did you did you have a sense that this was for real and it was going to change th- everything? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in a sense, I was primed for it, not only by the hideous successes of, or hideous ex-yeses, <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, I got I got turned on to, uh, I got turned on to the MC5 quite early uh, through you know the the underground press and that was I guess that was Mickey Mickey Farron's tip and I liked the kind of stance that Ian Hunter and Alex Harvey had but they were both funnily enough they were both you know a generation up from me and from most NME readers they were like the cool uncles if you like so. Okay, the CBGB thing for me was we were on this jaunt to go and see Alice Cooper in Detroit, but with a stopover for, in New York. And I I wanted to go and check out CBGBs because somebody had told me about it. And there was this girl from Record Mirror who kept saying, oh, I want to go to a disco. And in a sense, we were both right about the future. <laughs> it's just that she was she, yes. she was on the path to one future. I was on the path to yes. the other. So I went went to CBGB and saw Patty Smith and television. And and then when we got to Detroit, there was a girl in the audience at the Alice Cooper gig, which was was it was an enormous dome. And there was a girl I noticed near the front. And she was dressed exactly like Patty Smith, and I thought something's happening. And then a few months, a little while later, went back to the states for an extended travelogue to get various pieces together. And during the New York bit, Joe Stevens and I were staying at the Gramercy Park Hotel and trying to figure out how we could keep paying our bill. I can't remember how we did that, but I went back to CBGB several times, saw the Ramones who knocked me out and Blondie to whom I was really unfair. I didn't realize that they were a baby band at that point, still taking their first few steps and the sound system didn't suit them. And so I came down really hard on them and shouldn't have, because obviously very quickly, you know, they became a wonderful band. But, you know, seeing the Ramones, television, Patti Smith, various other groups who didn't attain that kind of status, people like Tough Darts and The Shirts. So I came I came back to London and wrote that piece. I remember Savage, John Savage telling me once that people started forming groups based on what I said the Ramones sounded like before yes. any Ramones records had actually, had, had actually yes. sort of crossed the pond. Yes. So, yes. And I was absolutely all for it, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't kick the blues to the curb. In fact, I remember when I did my second Muddy Waters interview, which was an NME cover story. 77, right? Yeah. I remember yeah. Paul Morley was furious. He wanted the cover for whoever his latest Manchester discovery had been that week and thought it was disgusting that you know, like an, an, uh, something as old-fashioned as an elderly blues singer would be on the cover. I think yes. at that particular point, with Muddy touring with Johnny Winter, Hard yes. again, that a fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that again, was the era, and you know, I th- I thought Muddy had earned it, and we'd try again later for for B and the others. But you know, I kept, I know, ke- I, I kept the blues in one pocket and, and punk in another, while continuing to wear Bowie around my neck. What can I tell you? <laughs> Very good. I mean, well, that, that you know that that music was as tough and gritty as any punk rock. Let's 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 yeah. right. 
Yeah, you know, let's not let's <laughs> not let's I mean, not forget. Yeah, I mean the first Clash album was their blues was their blues album, just like <laughs> Plastic Ono Band was John Lennon's blues album. You know, you can find blues yeah. albums in a lot of discographies, even though they may not actually sound like yes. blues in terms of timbre or harmonic structure or whatever. Mm. It's you know, blues is a con is as much a content as a form, and I bet Neil yeah. Young would agree with me. Yes, yeah. exa- exactly. As if losing Robbie Robertson and Jamie Reed wasn't bad enough, I just found out this morning that Rodriguez had died a couple of days ago. Obviously a more obscure figure than Robbie Robertson, but a serious kind of cult figure based on this this wonderful documentary that came out, Searching for Sugar Man. Yeah. And we've got four pieces about Rodriguez on Rock's Back Pages, one of which we will we'll be adding on the homepage. But it's a rather extraordinary story, isn't it? Jasper, have you I know you're a Rodriguez fan. Yeah. I mean I love I loved that film when it came out. I didn't obviously I mean I think like lots of people had never heard of Rodriguez. Because he he kind of faded into obscurity. He was around in the seventies and then wasn't late sixties, early seventies and then and then wasn't there anymore. And then this group of South African fans because he sort of had a a second wind that he didn't know about in in South Africa in particular and they kind of tried to track him down sometime in the 90s and I think that's the story that the film tells and it's it tells it really beautifully and nobody's even sure if he's alive or dead at this point I mean obviously given that he only died a couple of days ago he was still alive and they found him and, and he did get to have that second wind in a sense but I just think also the music is really wonderful. He's got an incredible voice and he he sort of sings these these timeless stories. And I immediately loved the music. As, and I think that's what brings the film together is that actually there's a there's a real reason why he was had that popularity in South Africa combined with that mystery of, you know, nobody knowing anything about him. And and so if you've not seen the film, I think it's it's wonderful. And I think the music is is great too. It is really interesting when someone suddenly acquires this sort of cult status in a relatively far-flung country, isn't it? In fact, I remember going to South Africa once and learning that Clarence Carter was a sort of huge <laughs> star there. Well, he certainly his star was on the wane in, in, in America, but um, he, would, he would go over there and um, I, I don't know whether he was kind of, yeah, sort of breaking kind of in cultural boycotts and embargoes he may well have been but i yeah i think it was someone giving me a a cassette tape with the two rodriguez albums on them back in that time and i mean charles martin do you have anything to say particularly about rodriguez did you did you see that documentary yeah i i saw the documentary i mean i didn't i'd never never heard of him prior to that I mean, I don't have any of his records. I must watch the documentary again. I'm sure it's online somewhere. But, you know, it was an, it was an amazing story. Yes, exactly. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Because I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams we are sort of out of time aren't we jasper getting um, to that point yeah <laughs> do, do you want to just say um, a couple of things about pieces that have been added yeah shall I, I mean there's a couple of things that just amused me that mark added before he went off on his you know tuscan idyll <laughs> they're both from the late 70s <laughs> and they are very contrasting things so one of them we had jim farber on in the previous episode and was a wonderful guest and uh, marcus added this story that jim wrote for circus it is a cover story about the lovely ted nugent <laughs> and <laughs> uh, as opposed so- to the other one yeah, as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to the, the guy with the, the NRA, the guy who 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 plays at the starts uh, the, start Trump, the Trump weird, rallies. The weird thing is, though, that apparently he and Tom, uh, Ted Nugent and Tom Morello are really good buddies, and I can't think of any two American musicians whose politics are further apart. Well, it gives us hope, right? Hands across the divide. But there's a wonderful quote from this Nugent interview by Jim. He says, I'm the most honourable person I've ever met. 
If there's a catastrophe on hand, I'll be the first to overpower it. If someone pulls a knife on me, I'll be the first motherfucker to punch him in the eye. If someone looks at my family wrong, I'll be the first to de-leg him. <laughs> well, so, you know, uh, Ted has sort of continued in that vein, really, um, ever since. And, you know, he's kind of funny and he's not stupid, but his politics are really toxic and obnoxious. And there are very, if you search for pictures online of Ted Nugent, there are very few that don't feature him with either an enormous gun in his uh, hands or a crossbow, preferably with a dead animal beside him. And, um, yeah, there's a weird quote also in this interview. He says, I, the most thing I'm, people misunderstand me and think I'm violent. I wouldn't hurt a fly. Something doesn't tally there. Anyway, that's <laughs> Ted. And then I just sort of, um, Slightly preferable is Bruce Springsteen talking to Paul Nelson, the great Paul Nelson in Rolling Stone in 78. And he's just talking about what he does and his values. And he says of, you know, his music and, you know, his live shows, the whole idea is to deliver what money can't buy. That's the idea of going out there. You don't go out there to deliver $7.50 worth of music. My whole thing is to go out and deliver what people cannot possibly buy. And if you do that, you've done whatever you could do. So I thought that was um, just a corrective to the Nugent. Yay, Bruce. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> Yay, Bruce. Jasper, you've got a couple of things to talk about. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, first of which is another one of those that Mark had it before he went. I don't, I don't know if it's Tuscany or if it's if it's Liguria, but anyway, Liguria. <laughs> I think I think. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'm I've sure he'll come back. Him. He'll, he'll come back and say, you know, him by putting him in Tuscany. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. As if one wouldn't yeah. want to go to Tuscany. Well, yeah. sure. I could have said he was staying with Sting and Trudy in the <laughs> Tuscan Palazzo. That would have really riled him. Moni Love to Jeff Larez in Blues and Soul in 1989. I see hip-hop today as a school, not old or new or anything like that. The teacher's a public enemy. My classmates are the likes of the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Queen Latifah, Boogie Down Productions, MC Light, MC Mellow, and Debt Incorporated from over here. Public enemy and now possibly even Boogie Down Productions are the main inspiration block, though. So it's, that's an interesting point in time. Obviously, Moni, here in the UK, talking about US hip-hop. So I thought that was cool. Do you think Ron DeSantis would approve of those things on the Florida school <laughs> curriculum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know about that i don't know about that next up is sylvia patterson talks to beyonce in may 2003 for the face and this is a really interesting point in time for beyonce because she's just just sort of finished up with destiny's child and she's only 21 at this point but you know she's been in destiny's child for a good few years already and it's just a, an, an interview with her she's kind of very private but it's still sylvia patterson is desperately trying to get her to comment on the whole Jay-Z story, because that was like right at that, that had just happened. They'd done O3 Bonnie and Clyde together and there are all these rumors swelling around and Beyonce is trying very hard not to, not to give the game away. But Sylvia Patterson asks, how many times have you been in love? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you do, says Sylvia. No, I don't. I'm not sure. I don't know. That depends. But I have been in love. I do feel like I have been in love. And right now, right now, scoff some more omelette. You're funny. I'm happy. I'll say that. When did you last see Jay-Z? Gigantic grin, enormous pause. I saw him on television today, the video. And how did you feel? I've seen it a hundred times. <laughs> Was there a flutter in your heart? You're funny. It's just, it's just, it's very good. You know, and, and I mean, Sylvia Patterson writes really well about Beyonce at that point as well. Beyonce Knowles has written some of the greatest pop singles of her generation. Not one of them contains production line cliches and many are musically unfathomable, unique, complex, creative soundscapes across the spectrum of state of the art sound. Say my name is bonkers, unsingable, unless you've Beyonce's contortionist tonsils. Such is the studio power she now wields. She interviews <laughs> potential producers, no matter what clout their name carries. I just think it's great because, you know, Beyonce, probably the biggest star of the 21st century. And already in 2003, you can really, looking back now, you can really tell that she's, she's, she knows what she's doing and has done it incredibly well ever since. Wonderful. Great to have that. And of course, great to have Sylvia on RBP now. And she was on the podcast, what, about two, three months ago? Yeah. Anyway, I think we've come to the end of the episode. Do visit Roxback Pages where subscribers can read well over 50,000 articles and listen to well over 800 audios with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush and beyond. 
check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. And if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. So it only remains for us to thank you, Charles Shaw Murray, so much for joining us and being such a great yeah. guest today. Thank you. Do, uh, listeners, do go out and buy Charles's remarkable books, including Shots from the Hip, which is a collection of some of his very best pieces that came out in 1991 i'm holding it up here for the camera you can't see it listeners but i have it here in my clammy <laughs> palms so well thank you again charles so much for joining us and um we will say goodbye to all our listeners now bye, bye. you'll take real good care now come back soon That concludes episode 158 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Charles Shah Murray. Find his books, including Boogeyman, The Adventures of John Lee Hooker, at all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yeah. Uh, break it down for me.